My name is Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. It's a great honor. My home group is the Rebels Meeting in Corona Del Mar, California. My sobriety date is the summer solstice, 1999. It has not escaped my notice that there are people in this room with more time and sobriety sitting in the bathroom than I have. <laughs> I think it's just best for me to admit that. <laughs> and to confess to you that my sobriety is very early and immature, and I know you'll see that. But I am grateful that you asked me to be here tonight. I work at a little treatment center in Newport Beach, California, and I talk to addicts. And I sort of feel that same humility whenever I sit in front of addicts. I tell them that the fact that I'm a physician really counts for nothing in the business of addiction medicine. I got exactly that many lectures on addiction in medical school. I fully admit to addicts that being a doctor is not what qualifies me to talk to them about addiction. I tell them that what qualifies me to talk to them about addiction is that I'm one of the few doctors that they'll ever meet who has taken the time and made the effort to shoot some drugs. <laughs> That's what qualifies me to talk to them about addiction. <laughs> A lot of doctors come up to me after I lecture and they say, well, Dr. McCauley, you seem to understand this addiction thing so well. I wish I understood it as well as you do. And I ask them, well, have you shot the drugs? <laughs> you got to shoot the drugs. <laughs> they don't want to shoot the drugs. They're worried about things like prison and jail. <laughs> Wussies. <laughs> You know, I, I don't mean to be flippant about that. Doctor shooting drugs is not a joke. But you see, and you all know this, in this business, it does matter to the patients if their doctors has shot drugs. It does matter to the patients if their doctor has some feeling for what they're going through, for what it's like to crave, for what it's like to persistently use drugs despite terrible consequences. I'll tell you a little bit about my story up front. I was a flight surgeon in the United States Navy. I took care of pilots. And in the course of my duties, I had a surgery. And after that surgery, I became addicted to Percocet, and that very, very quickly accelerated to an intravenous Demerol addiction. And when they offered me the job to become flight surgeon to the Blue Angels, I decided that I would quit because I figured that if I was going to wear a blue flight suit, it might be best not to be an intravenous narcotic addict. <laughs> you don't want to be signing autographs at an air show and bend over and have a needle fall out of your flight suit pocket. <laughs> that never looks very good. <laughs> so I decided I would quit, and I couldn't. Now, I've been able to do most things that I put my mind to. I wanted to become a doctor. I became a doctor. I wanted to be a naval officer. No problem. I wanted to fly fighter jets over the sound barrier. Did it. Wanted to stop drinking and using drugs. And I was powerless. 
And I really do believe that it's when we try to quit <laughs> that we become most obvious. And I became very obvious very quickly. And the Navy, well, the Navy caught me, <laughs> and they were pissed, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> They don't like their fighter jet flying doctors who are secret cleared to be shooting drugs. That's not very, doesn't make them happy. So they sent me, the Navy did, to their long-term treatment facility for drug addicts. The Navy has one. It's called uh, Leavenworth. And when you go from the backseat of an F-18 Hornet to a maximum security prison cell in about the space of six months, it, it tends to get your attention. <laughs> and it got my attention. And it started me on a journey that has just been amazing. A journey into a problem, I think, that our entire species is facing, that I believe that in our lifetimes we will find the answers to. One of the things that I had when I was in my cell at Leavenworth were books. I was allowed ten. And the first five were all AA or NA-related books. The second book was sent to me by my mother. It was the Lowenson text, the substance abuse text. And I remember the day that it arrived, I went, I was called out of my cell to go to the mailroom. And you stand in front of a piece of plexiglass and the mailroom guy opens up the bags and, you know, they're checking for camped contraband and things like that. And he opened it up and it was the Lowenson text and it said substance abuse, a comprehensive textbook. And he looked at it and he looked at me and he said, I don't think so. <laughs> and I said, oh, come on, you know, it's, it's just a textbook. I'm a doctor. It's a medical textbook. It's, you know, there's no recipe for heroin in there or anything. He <laughs> said, no, I think it has to go by the reading committee. And the reading committee was essentially a committee that decided what would enter the prison and what wouldn't. And so he took the text and he put it on a stack of magazines with titles like Scoutmasters on Uranus. <laughs> and... <laughs> Yes, I'll have some candy, Mr. Man. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it looked a little silly sitting there. And he reached for a form, and he, he reached into his box, and there were no more forms. And I guess he didn't want to go and get any more. And he said, okay, fine. And he shoved the book at me. And I sat down, and thankfully the Navy had given me a little time off of work and a nice quiet place to study. <laughs> and I proceeded to do everything that I hadn't done in medical school. I proceeded to learn everything I could about addiction, and I ordered every book, every journal article I could find. Many of you, your names were on those monographs and chapters, and I had always hoped that someday I would be out of prison in front of you today. I didn't think I'd be speaking to you, and I'm grateful to you because your words do make it into prisons, and they are read by people who are suffering. And I read, and I read, and I read, and the things that I learned blew me away. Because the things that we are learning about what happens to the human brain when it becomes addicted to alcohol and drugs are blowing us away. And I do believe that that information, which comes to us now almost quarterly with new ideas and new data, I do believe that that information is going to change the world. I think that in our lifetimes, we will see everything that we do for addiction, at least in the medical sense, 
change. And I'm very excited about that. I guess I should say something about my family. My father was a very, very charming Irish alcoholic. And when he drank, it seemed to unhinge something in him. And he became very violent. And he took that violence out on my mother. And I think that when she got pregnant, she thought maybe it would stop, but it didn't. In fact, it only got worse. And she tells me the story about one time she was sitting in her doctor's office, in her obstetrician's office, and, and he said, okay, well, the pregnancy looks good. Uh, are you any questions? And he had his hand on the doorknob, and she was finishing a button, and she said, my husband beats me. And the doctor whirled around, and he said, you know what? I don't handle that. I'm sorry. We can talk about your pregnancy when you're here, but I don't handle any of that other stuff. Now, I ask you, are there any questions? And she said no, and he was gone. And I was born, and the violence got worse, and eventually my father brought home a gun, and my mother realized that if she didn't leave right now, he was going to kill both of us. And so she did something that women didn't really do in 1969. She picked me up, and with the clothes on her back, she walked into a rainy, cold night in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. And I never saw my father again after that, but my mother, well, my mother, I think, went into sort of super mom mode because somehow she found a job, she found us a place to live, she put herself through nursing school. Ten years later, she decided that she wanted to be a doctor. She didn't even have a high school education. She had to take the SATs. But she got into Cal State University Hayward in California, and from there she transferred to the University of California at Berkeley. She took the MCATs. She applied to 42 medical schools and was rejected by 41. <laughs> and today, in Alameda, California, there's an obstetrician's office. And if a pregnant woman says, my husband beats me, I guarantee you the doctor in that office does handle it. So you can probably see why this woman was my absolute hero and why all I ever wanted to do was be just like her. And so my mother and I graduated only six years apart from the Medical College of Pennsylvania. <laughs> she hooded me. And then I decided that I would do something that she really didn't want me to do. I believed that I should serve my country, and I believed that it was best, I think, for a... Uh, for a pacifist to serve. And so I joined the Navy, and I was very, very proud to wear the uniform, the uniform that my grandfather had worn in World War II. And I went to Pensacola, Florida, to become a flight surgeon. And when I started my classes, the classes were quite boring, and it was about four months later when when a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Nabil Takla, Captain Takla, strode to the front of the room and he gave what was the most important lecture of my entire life. And he said, doctors, if you have an alcoholic pilot in your squadron, a bad alcoholic pilot, he hasn't quite seized yet, but he's on his way. And you get that pilot to 30-day inpatient treatment, and he does well on his 31st day sober. His first day back at the squadron. He's got that little 30-day AA chip hot in his flight suit pocket. Fly him. Get him up. Get him in the plane that day. And I got to tell you, 
I was a little amazed. So were the rest of the doctors in my class. We'd all just graduated from medical school only a year before. And we learned in medical school that you really can't help alcoholics. That's very sad. It's a disease or whatever. It doesn't matter. But really, we have other patients to care for. And it's best to just sort of tune them up and get them out because we've got other things. Oh, and by the way, if you've got a drug addict in your office, if you find that that person sitting in their underwear on that little slice of butcher paper is a Vicodin seeker or a heroin junkie or a tweaker, well, doctor, there's only one thing to do with that patient. Kick him out. Kick him right out in the street. These people are liars, cheats, and thieves. They will make your practice a living nightmare. If you don't want men with badges showing up at your front door, do yourself and that addict a favor. Get them out. That's what we learned. And there is no gray hair on my head yet. And so here was this captain in the United States Navy telling us that we could take alcoholic pilots and waver them back to flying status. And we were a little shocked. And we said, uh, did you say um, fly them? You mean uh, in an airplane? Uh, why would you do that? Why would you take this known alcoholic pilot and put him back in the cockpit of that F-18? And Dr. Takla said, because it works. Because we found that it works. You see, the Navy, back in the 60s, realized that if they took a zero-tolerance policy towards alcoholism in their aviators, if they told their aviators the minute they got to Pensacola, listen, the flight surgeon wants to say something to you. Guys, I'm your flight surgeon. Listen, we, we know that about 10% of you are going to become alcoholics in the course of your Navy or Marine Corps flying career. And you know what? If that happens, I'm sorry, you'll never fly again. The Navy knew that if they did that, it would drive their alcoholic pilots underground. And they wouldn't find out about the problem until there was a smoking piece of tin in the ground. Instead, the Navy decided that they would take a risk management policy. And when I heard that, I just, I couldn't believe it. This was, this was what my mother had taught me, that it's, you know, it's terrible that pregnant little, it's terrible that young teenage girls have sex, but you know what they do? And my mother was willing, you know, thought it was her duty to do something about that. It's terrible that pilots drink and become alcoholics, but you know what they do? What are we going to do about it? And so I went from Pensacola to a little squadron in Tustin, California. It was a helicopter squadron. It was a Marine Corps helicopter squadron because when we were selecting our billets, I, I went to the Library and pulled out the United States Marine Corps Officer's Guide, and I read words like, no officer sleeps until all his troops are bedded down. No officer eats until all of his troops have a full belly. We do not leave men in the field. And I realized that those are the people that I wanted to be a doctor for. And so I went to this squadron, and I had a wonderful time. The flying was great. I learned to fly helicopters. I flew the CH-53 Delta. It's a giant 88-foot-long helicopter that can put, pick up 50 Marines. And we had a wonderful time. I was the squadron doctor. I was the family doctor. I could make house calls. I had alcoholic pilots, but you know what? I never, I never spotted them myself. I have to be honest with you. They came to me. They didn't need interventions. They didn't need to be coerced. Why? Because the Navy had told them over and over again, you matter, your skills are valuable to us, we want to retain you, we'll get you the best treatment money can buy. 
You've got to get sober. How can we help? And I knew that the only reason that I had gold wings on my chest was to protect the gold wings on their chest. And once they knew that, they came. They came out of the woodwork. And we sent them to treatment, and they went back to flying, and they did great. And that just put like a laser beam cut through that stigma over alcoholism that I had learned in medical school. After two years with that helicopter squadron, I moved over to the Hornet community. I moved to a, uh, a, fleet, a fleet reserve squadron for the F-18 Hornet. That's a um, supersonic fighter jet. We had 42 planes. We had flights leaving every five minutes. It was a great job. I would go to the clinic, see a few patients, grab my gear and go flying, fly out past Catalina, break the sound barrier, fly over to Yuma, drop some bombs, kill some Gila monsters. It was a great job. But, you know, something that I learned is that airframe drives personality, or at least personality drives airframe. Helicopter, squad, helicopter pilots are, are wonderful folks. They're very collegial. It, it's a two-pilot aircraft, so nobody really, you know, everybody's comfortable saying, you know what, I don't think I can do this. What do you think? They're very friendly. It's a family. Jet pilots, on the other hand, are a different story. A helicopter is something that, uh, well, it's an aircraft that wants to please you. It's like a horse. It, uh, it can fly right over to you. You can put your hand on its nose. <laughs> it, it can set one skid on a fence post. These are not my words. These are actually the words of the son of Igor Sikorsky. A helicopter is something that you visit in the barn. It's friendly. It wants to please you. And so are helicopter pilots. That's not the case with jets. Jets are something that you strap on and tame. Jet pilots are aloof. They're off in the distance. You can't see them. And it's also important to remember that the F-18 is a weapon. Its job is to kill people and break things. And so it's a totally different mission. And it was a much, much more serious business. All the fun of the squadron was now replaced with some very, very, very serious business. And for the most part, all we did was just yank wings and identify pilots that shouldn't be flying. And I found that work very, very hard because pilots are fun people to take care of. They love to fly. And I don't mean they enjoy it. I mean they love to fly. It's part of who they are, you see. These guys will always fly more. They, they can go out on the ship for six months, right, and come back, and their family's sitting in the parking lot with balloons. Welcome home, Daddy. And someone will say, hey, we need someone to go up to Whidbey uh, for a part, and they'll fight over the flight. <laughs> You know, when you see someone love someone, something that much, you want to protect them. You want to take care of them. And now my job was essentially telling people that they couldn't fly anymore. We had one pilot, his name was Hollywood, and he was Holly, his name was Hollywood because he was just a great stick, and he looked terrific. He was gorgeous and beautiful and young and capable. And he, on his very last flight before going out to his squadron, last flight at our training squadron, he pulled one of the newer Hornets, which had more powerful engines. And it got the better of him. And when he lifted off the uh, runway at El Toro, he felt the kick from the afterburner, and he did an aileron roll. Oh, you know, I know, you've seen Top Gun. That happens all the time, right? Well, that's actually not true. It's a very, very, very serious mistake. And so uh, a call came in to the uh, squadron duty officer's desk, and a wife uh, out at base housing had seen a hornet come over upside down. Now, it wasn't upside down for very long, but you understand the plane is moving so quickly that, uh, 
that, you know, it didn't look right. And so the XO heard that, and he went right down to the flight line, and when the plane came back, he didn't say anything to Hollywood. He didn't say a thing. He just pulled the flight recorder out of the, out of the plane, went over to maintenance, downloaded the information because it records all the power settings and the, uh, the uh, uh, control surface settings, and there they were, two aileron rolls. And so we convened a board, and we sat down, the flight surgeon, obviously, you know, what, what were you doing? Are you crazy? He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, listen. And so we said, okay, I think you've learned your lesson. And we punished him by giving him five more flights, which, of course, for a pilot, you know, hey, they love that. And we sent our report up, and it came right back down from the admiral. Absolutely not. This guy never flies again. And Hollywood came to work the next day with two little holes where his wings had been. I've never been more worried about suicide in a patient than that guy. You know, we know that addiction is a stress-induced defect in the midbrain. We know that there's a correlation between women who are battered in their first trimester of pregnancy and their children, especially their male children, once born, and those children grown up in their second and third decades of life, those children developing three things, anger management problems, ADHD, and stimulant addiction. I told my mother that, and she cried for days. And I think that the stress, the, the CRF, the corticotropin releasing factor that is released, I think, I think the kind of stress that matters is, well, a stress involving loss of agency, involving a, an inability to affect one's world. Everything you try doesn't work. Everything you want, it doesn't happen. And that's the situation that I found myself in. And they say that when the CRF is released over time and it doesn't get handled, when the person looks into their bag of coping tricks, and I certainly didn't have a very full one, Two things change. Genes for novelty-seeking turn on, i.e., the person becomes more risk-taking. And two, the population of dopamine receptors changes. And I can pinpoint the day, almost, when I started shotgunning the world, where I started gambling. But I didn't like that because I lost a lot of money. Where I recognized that if you put your picture next to an F-18 on AOL, you can get laid almost every weekend. But I didn't like that very much because no one returned my phone calls afterwards, and I took that personally. <laughs> I remember binge drinking. I remember spending too much money. I remember shotgunning everything that is a dopamine-releasing chemical or behavior, trying to find that one thing. I remember taking risks that I hadn't taken before. And it was right at that moment that I had to have that surgery. And the surgery... Well, the surgery was a TERP. <laughs> it was a transurethral resection of the prostate, which is a very, very, very strange surgery for a 29-year-old to have, I'll admit. But I couldn't go to the bathroom, and since the treatment was hytrin and I couldn't fly on hytrin, they went ahead and did it. So there I was between two 80-year-olds, right? <laughs> and I discovered something that, that men, young men, don't know. Women know it. Older men know it. Pelvic pain is a different kind of pain. <laughs> it's not just a pain that hurts. It's a, an emotional pain. It's a very degrading pain, a humiliating pain. And I remember leaving the hospital, you know, with my little bag and my little tube in a flight suit, no less. The flight suit's perfect for that. <laughs> uh, and I remember the doctor saying, do you want any narcs? And I could have... I could have said no, but I was afraid, and I said yes. Now, I had taken Percocet before, and I didn't like it. It made me dysphoric, not euphoric. 
This time, I took that Percocet, and the world just came on. I mean, the sky was the right shade of blue. I was no longer an asshole. All things were possible, all right? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I had two weeks of convalescent leave, 50 of the damn things. This was going to be great, right? I, I remember the feeling. It was just so incredibly, well, I mean, you know, it was, well, a restoral of that sense of agency. I was okay now with the things that, that I had had to do. You know, um, that memory stayed with me. After the Percocet ran out, I, I put the bottle aside and I went back to work. But that memory stayed with me. And it wasn't until about six months later that I was faced with another stressor and I remembered, well, you know what, I've got some Vicodin in the medicine cabinet. I've got a terrible headache. You know, it's my Vicodin. And so I took it. And then the next week, well, I don't have any Vicodin anymore, but I, I think I have some Percocet samples or, or maybe some samples in my medicine kit, and I got that. And you see, this is what I realized. It's no one single giant violation. It's a lot of little tiny boundaries that are violated, and they add up over time. And very, very quickly, I had a really serious Percocet problem, and I was forging triplicates. And, you know, I think you all know the feeling I'm talking about. You, you come home on a Friday afternoon. It's been a long, long week, and I deserve a break. Unfortunately, I don't have to work for the next two days. And so you take these. The sun is just going down. And so you take the Vicodin or the Percocet. You take about eight of them, right? Eight of them, wash them down. And they don't come on right away, you understand. It takes a little while. It takes about 20 minutes. So you start going about your day. You don't even think that you tuck the pills. You do the laundry. You do the wash. And then all of a sudden, you turn, and you put your foot down, and your foot comes down about a half centimeter off from where you'd intended it to. And you realize, oh, my God, I'm high. <laughs> and there's not a goddamn thing anyone can do about it. <laughs> And suddenly all the bets are off, the rules no longer apply, and maybe everything will work out. And I really liked that feeling. And very quickly I graduated to the Demerol, and I was really forging triplicates. Now I had a collection of little old ladies dying of cancer in Newport Beach. Very sad cases. Let me, let me see. There was, there was Miss Stewart, I think. Yes, that's it. She was uh, 70 years old. She had terrible lung cancer. And uh, I would walk into the pharmacy with my tie on and my triplicates and my briefcase. And I'd say, I'm Dr. McCauley. Here's my ID. Here are my triplicates. I need to make a house call for this patient. Uh, she, we just have to get her through this weekend so that she can visit with her children before she dies. There was Ms. Um, Nakazato, stomach cancer, a uh, patient from Japan, okay? Uh, and I would walk in and say, I need a vial of Demerol for Ms. Nakazato because we just have to get her through this weekend because her dying dream is to see Disneyland. Very sad cases. <laughs> None of these patients existed, mind you, but they were very sad cases, I promise you. <laughs> so, and I had a real problem, and um, I got... I was moonlighting at the time, and I, I got caught uh, with a uh, record uh, abnormality. Let's just put it that way. Um, and the doctor said, well, you know what? If you don't call the California Diversion pro pro uh, Program, I'll turn you in. And, you know, 
I had one, I had looked at, I remember looking at that action report over and over again and looking at that number, and I was unsure of what would happen if I called. Would they tell the Navy? I mean, because the Navy had made it very, very clear about what they do to drug addicts. Alcoholics, no problem. Nicotine addicts, no problem. Food, gambling, no problem. Best treatment money could buy. But when zero tolerance came along, they made a division. And so I had no choice at this point, and so I called them up, and they said, you know what, that's okay, this happens. Go to this place in Fountain Valley and talk to a guy named Jack Sanow. And when I walked into that room and I saw that table of about 20 folks in scrubs, beepers, one guy had a bandolier of beepers, he was a surgery resident. (laughs) (laughs) And all of these guys were alcoholics and drug addicts and they were sober and they were doing just fine and they welcomed me and I knew that really from that moment on everything that that I was home. I, I didn't get sober right away, but I, 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 it was very moving. And so um, what happened was eventually uh, the Navy found out. The, the folks in diversion had said, okay, you got to go to Betty Ford. And I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I can't just do that. I can't just walk up to my Marine Corps CEO and say, sir, can I have 30 days off so I can uh, go get treatment for my intravenous Demerol problem? They're not going to like that, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And so I was kind of in a strange spot in the military. And in the time, in only the week that they had, you know, were trying to figure out what to do, I got caught. A patient came in. I had torn up all my triplicates. I was going to meetings every day. I was going to the diversion meetings. But I was unsafe. I was unsupported. I was, you know, just as dangerous as ever. And a patient came in, a young Marine, Lance Corporal, and he said he had back pain. And Marines are issued back pain when they get their rifle. I mean, it's really dangerous. <laughs> and we usually just throw vitamin M at it, you know, Motrin and a light-duty chip, maybe a little Flexeril. And uh, I started to write out the prescripts, and he said, you know, I've also had some trouble um, urinating. And my little attic wheels started turning. And I thought, maybe I can talk this into a kidney stone. So I took his urine, I spun it down, totally clean, but I put down red cells. And I ordered him Demerol and Vicodin. I gave him the Vicodin. I kept the Demerol for myself. And I gave him a shot of water. And that's a terrible crime. And I think the corpsman came in just as I was starting to nod off. And his wheels started turning, and the pharmacy's wheels started turning. It all came together. And within about two hours, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service you know, walked in and said, we got to talk. And it turned out that that little morning was worth 28 years under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And um, you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I agreed. And they said, OK, we'll go home, and we'll uh, prepare your court-martial. And I said, well, wait a minute, can I go to Betty Ford? And they said, no, nope. you can go home and we'll prepare for your court martial. You call in once a day. And so I, I went to my NA meetings and I just held onto the chair as hard as I could. I went to the diversion meetings. I tried my best, but pretty soon people had started talking about heroin and I had never tried heroin and I wanted to. And so pretty soon I was down in Long Beach uh, trying to uh, score some heroin. And I remember this very, very nice man, his name was David, very, very nice guy, uh, would sell me heroin, and or sold me heroin once. And uh, as I was walking off, he showed me how to use it with a little spoon and all that stuff. It's very interesting. Um, <laughs> 
he gave me this little packet of white powder, and he said, oh, and take this too. And I'm like, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's cocaine. You just put a little in there. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm an opioid addict, okay? Um, you know, I don't use cocaine, okay? Uh, and he goes, no, 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 you know, take it. No, you'll really enjoy it. And I'm like, I don't want it. He goes, take it. You want it. And I'm like, okay. Well, I took the heroin home, and I injected it, and my God, did I get sick. Oh, my Lord. It was the worst experience of my life. Once you've ridden in a Mercedes, Demerol, you, you can't ride in heroin. It's just, you know, too nauseating. I spent the entire day next to the toilet bowl. But uh, after I started to come to, I decided to try the cocaine. (laughs) And I realized I had been using the wrong drug. (laughs) So I never have thought about Demerol again. But about three weeks later, they picked me up psychotic in the middle of Redondo Beach. Um, (laughs) The cops uh, were trying to figure out the taser (laughs) when I just sort of passed out on my own and they wrestled me to the ground. (laughs) I I have this belief that 99% of all cocaine use in men is about one thing, sex. (laughs) And that 99% of that sex is about one thing, anger. And, uh, you know, man, I just took off. And it wasn't too long before I was, you know, psychotic. Um, And sometimes I explain to the patients, you know, the disease of too little dopamine is called Parkinson's disease. And the disease of too much dopamine is called schizophrenia. And essentially what they're doing when they use too much is that they're trying to get just a little bit of dopamine, not a lot, a little bit. And there's a spot right on that arc there. And that's called, you know, fun. It's called a good time. But the problem is, is that addicts zip through fun on their way to, you know, nuts, right? So it's like, <laughs> so like being on a train and watching your station go by. Oh, there goes fun. <laughs> oh, shit. <You> know? <laughs> And I mean, man, I just saw everything. I was just certain that they were after me, the whole business. It was really impressive. I was certain that they had spiked my cocaine with PCP. That's why I was acting so strange. It it was just the cocaine. And so they took me to the hospital, and uh, they calmed me down. And and then um, they put me in in jail there. And the next day, the Marines, uh, the Marine escorts came to take me down to the Marine Corps brig in Camp Pendleton. And... um, well, I just looked like t- crap. I had one black eye, I had one shoe. I just looked like a mess. I was, you know, track marks and infections all over the place. And um, I was escorted. And when you escort an officer, you have to have an officer of equal rank. And so I was escorted by a friend from the squadron who I had Thanksgiving with, actually, at his uh, house just a few months before that. And we got to the brig. And, uh, you know, the brig on Camp Pendleton is like a little prison, little guard towers, a concertina wire, the whole business. And uh, there were all these sort of little string of young Marines, you know, all shackled up, about ready to go in there. And the staff sergeant going, are we suicidal, Marine? Are we going to kill ourselves in my brig? Are you going to hang yourself in my brig? And they're like, no, staff sergeant. And I'm <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's, that's their mental status exam. Um, <laughs> And I, and I remember my, my, my pilot, who's, I was his, you know, he was my patient, of course, his name was uh, Coon, Coon Dog. And Coon Dog looked over at me and he said, be very, very careful in here. These people are very bizarre. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I uh, walked up there, you know, in my little handcuffs with two chasers and the staff sergeant looked at me and he was like, what the hell? And he looked at my file and then all of a sudden he realized... Navy, 
officer, drug addict. And I mean, the guy turned like eight shades of, of red on his way to purple. I mean, he couldn't even say anything. He was so disgusted, so infuriated. So they took me in there and they stripped me naked. It, it looked exactly like those photographs from Abu Ghraib. <laughs> I'm serious, okay? If you think that that is a rarity, forget it. Uh, and so they showered me and they took photographs of all my injuries so that they wouldn't get blamed for it. Um, and they, I remember they, they were sitting, everything is done naked well, by me, by uh, not by them. <laughs> that would be weird. That would be prison, wouldn't it? Um, and uh, they gave me all this stuff, you know, because they've got to give you gear. And so there was soap and, you know, stuff like that. And they gave me this big sack. It was like a, a cotton sack to put it in. And they put all this stuff in it. And they, they, they put a belly chain on and leg, you know, ankle manacles. And, and they uh, handcuffed my, my hands to that. And they gave me the bag. And all. I tried to sort of... Throw the bag over my shoulder, and then they just took me down into the. And it's, I'm not kidding you, it's cell blocks, the whole thing. I never knew that this existed. Apparently, the military has sort of a, a system of prisons all over the world, and they all look like this. They're real, you know, real fancy, and uh, well, for prisons. And uh, they took me down there, and uh, the, the screaming, I mean, just everybody just shouting, you know, and, you know, do that, do that. And these, you know, guys and. Prison uniforms running around, and this Marine Lance Corporal came up to me and he goes, What the hell are you, Santa Claus? And I'm like, What? <laughs> he goes, I asked you a question, are you Santa Claus? And I'm like, No, I'm not Santa Claus. And I just like, You know, what, what do I say? What do you do to make the screaming man stop? And, and, and I thought, You know what? Just look in his eyes and just, you know, plead, you know, helplessness. And I looked at him and I said, Lance Corporal, I'm a Navy doctor, okay? Uh, and, and if you, if you, you know, want me to do something, I, I promise you I'll do it just as, as quickly as you can. And he goes, well, I want you to hold that sack out of port arms like that. And I'm saying, absolutely, Staff Sergeant. Don't hold it over your neck like that, like stupid Santa Claus. I'm like, yes, sir, absolutely, Staff Sergeant. So I'm, you know, holding my sack out of port arms, you know, as much as I could with a belly chain on. And so they, they took me down to the cell block, and they, they emptied out two cells on either side because I was an officer. I was actually the ranking officer for about five miles in every direction. And that, uh, <laughs> that, that upsets Marines. They really don't know what to do, and so they, they kind of go overboard a little bit. And so they took me down in this cell, and they have little radios, and they electronically opened the cell door, and they said, go in there. And they took off the shackles, and uh, I put my little sack on my bunk there. And he goes, all right, face me. And I said, yes, absolutely. And he goes, we're going to strip search you. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Here we go. The karma of a thousand rectal exams comes home to roost. <laughs> So he's like, take off your blouse, shake it out. Shake it out. You know, take off your pants, take off your underwear, shake it out. You know, shake out your hair, lift up your tongue, turn around. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Bend down, lift, spread your cheeks, cough. I'm cough. Okay, stand up. I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> that's bad. He goes, face me. I face him. He goes, lift up your sack. And so I went over to my bunk. Got my sack. And again, the eight shades of red on their way to purple. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> you told me to lift up my sack. He goes, you're not sack, you stupid son of a bitch. I'm like, oh, oh I see. What you, you see, Lance Corporal, I'm a Navy doctor. <laughs> and, 
And when you say sack, I think, you know, sack. What you mean to say is scrotum. That's the word, scrotum. Look up your scrotum. So I put my sack. Now let me help you. How's that? He didn't appreciate the anatomy lesson. And so that went on for 90 days. <laughs> I spent 90 days in solitary confinement in, um, in the brig at uh, Camp Pendleton. And my court-martial came, and, you know, I think I had a moment of clarity when my uh, Marine Corps-appointed attorney, very nice guy, um, we were sort of saying, well, how many times did you forge, you know, triplicates <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the Marine Corps base? I said, I don't know, 10. I, no, no, not 10, like five. And he goes, well, uh, you know, the prosecutor thinks he did it about 20 times. And so, you know, when you allocute, you need to say 20. And I'm like, oh, I, <laughs> that's a bunch of crap. I didn't do it 20 times. I did it five times, you know. And he's like, listen, you, it doesn't matter how many times you did it. It matters that you did it. And I just remember his steely blue eyes looking right at me, and I had a moment of clarity. And I realized that there was only one way to handle this. I was not in a court of law, a civilian court of law. I was in front of, I'm going to be in front of a Marine Corps tribunal. And there's only one way to handle this, and that is to go up in front of that judge and say, Your Honor, everything that prosecutor said is true. I'm guilty. How can I make it right? And that actually impressed the judge. And he told me. He said, you can give me a year of your life. And so I went to Leavenworth. And quite frankly, looking back on it, you know, (laughs) yeah, thank God. I mean, they could have really, 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 really done it. So they took me out to Leavenworth, and I thought, you know, how are they going to take me out to Leavenworth? Maybe a little C-12, you know, a little military plane, maybe a little military Learjet. That'll be cool. Nope. They took me commercial air. In a white uniform, <laughs> shackled with two Marine, three Marine Corps chasers. Now, if you ever want an exercise in humility, <laughs> try that sometime. Try walking through an airport in chains in a white uniform with three chasers. It, it's really pretty impressive. <laughs> I don't care how busy people are, they will stop. They will stop <laughs> to take a peek. <laughs> you know, people point, they whisper, mothers grab their children. <laughs> They speculate on the nature of my crime, rapist, murderer, spy. Nope, just your garden variety drug addict. And so we went through the San Diego airport, the St. Louis airport, and the Kansas City airport that way. <laughs> um, and they got me to Leavenworth, and you really ought to see this building. It's, it's amazing. They, use it, they actually used photographs of the prison for establishment shots on TV. I see it all the time because it is so graphic, a prison. I mean, the thing is just, you know, it looks like it should have bats flying around it or something like that. I mean, it's just really, really impressive. And it got, you know, and they took me down to the basement there. And, uh, and the next day, uh, again, all naked, um, I got a haircut. And I got a haircut in my underwear by another guy in his underwear. Uh, <laughs> and the guy said, uh, so how long are you here for? And I'm like, well, I got a year. And he goes, a year? Man, you can do that standing on your head. As the average sentence at Leavenworth, you understand, is about 28 years. Uh, and he said, oh, wait a minute. You're that officer. 
that they brought in. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I guess so. And he's like, well, don't you worry. Everything's going to be fine. You're, you're not going to be in the general population. You're going to be on the officer's tier. You're going to be with your own. And I've always chafed against that officer enlisted distinction. I'm like, hey, you know what? That's okay. I don't need to go on the officer tier. I can go in the general population. He goes, oh, oh, no. you scared. You scared. He was absolutely right. I was petrified. Because I, like you, watch TV. I learned that the people in prison are terrible, awful people. They're murderers and rapists and thieves. And I knew that it was just going to be a matter of time before they beat me down or stabbed me or raped me. I mean, look at me. Look at me. I figured, I figured I'd be the most delicious piece of boy pussy that prison had seen in years. <laughs> I figured I'd have to take sign-ups for my ass. You know. <laughs> okay, can I fit you in at 5.30? Can you guys form a line? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> can you? <laughs> and so, yeah, I was scared. Well, let me... Let me tell you how that worked out. They released me into the general population on December 19th, 1997. At Leavenworth, at the military Leavenworth, near Christmas, inmates are allowed to get a Christmas package from their families. Now again, remember, the average sentence at Leavenworth is 28 years, and so most of these men are never going home. Never. They know where they will be when they die. I can pinpoint their spot on the globe within 100 yards at any time. And so I have tried, I have racked my brains trying to figure out what would be more precious to a human being than one of these Christmas packages. Because you see, this is the one time of the year that these men are allowed something from their old life. This is the time when their grandma can bake them the cookies that they used to get when they were a little kid. This is when their wife can send them a pie from their hometown bakery. Now, I knew that when my mother sent my Christmas package that I was just going to get beaten down for it, that they were going to steal it, because these are terrible people. These are liars. These are, these are rapists. These are thieves. And so I figured that they were going to get most of it, but if I, could just, if I could just hang on to one thing, if I could just hide one Twinkie or one packet of hot cho- cocoa deep enough in my mattress, I knew they were going to get most of it, but if I could just keep one thing, that would be something of a victory against the evil of these men because it was a mistake that I was here I wasn't like them and so I took my Christmas package back to my cell and I tried to hide everything as well as I could and Christmas Eve came and you know if you ever go to a prison one of the things that will strike you is the noise an unbelievable hot wall of noise will strike you and this is the one time in that prison when things were quiet everyone was playing chess or reading or Hair of headphones, you watch uh, TV with headphones on. And right at midnight, everybody took off their headphones and packed up their chess sets, came out of their cells. And they had a party. And we had one table on the tier. And on their table, they laid out their Christmas packages. And they came down to my cell. I was out about one week. And they said, hey, new guy, try these cookies. My grandma sent them. Try this pie. It's from my hometown bakery. 
These are men with nothing. And yet they were willing to share the little bit they had with me, with a stranger. And I knew from that moment on that I was going to be just fine. I believe deeply, passionately, in the goodness of human beings. If I look for it, I will find it. And when I can't do something, I can rely on it. And I want to get as close to that as I can. I warm myself by that flame, and I find it brightest in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have all learned that these people are rapists, thieves, evil. And they are people just like you and me. There are 2.1 million people in prison in the United States today. That is one of the highest per capita incarceration rates in human history. Half of them there are there for the things that they did on drugs or alcohol alone. If you don't think that this is a public health nightmare, well, think again. You cannot turn on cable television on any given night and not see one, two, sometimes three shows on one thing, prisons. Prisons of the past, supermax facilities. These look like documentaries. They are not. They are ads. They are ads carefully crafted by a prison industrial complex to tell you, America, be afraid. Be very afraid. There are terrible people out there, drug addicts, alcoholics, and you need our product. I'm proud to be a doctor. I'm proudest. I'm proud of my gold wings, but I am proudest of being inmate number 76930 at the United States Disciplinary Barracks, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Because I wouldn't trade that year for my entire life. I would go back and do it again to remember that. When I expected evil, I found good. And as long as I acted good, as long as I was respectful, that's all I ever got back because these are just people like you, like me, alcoholics. They're there. We're here. When I got out of Leavenworth, I went straight to a little place called Rancho Labrie in East San Diego County. I was there two weeks. I stayed actually four months, but two weeks into it, I was very happy to be out. I was the happiest person ever, I think, to enter treatment. I practically skipped into the place. <laughs> and after about two weeks there, there was a knock. I was sharing and caring in a little group, you know, how it works. And there was a little knock on the door, and they said, uh, Kevin, could you come out here for a minute? And I said, sure. And when I walked outside, <laughs> there were four white cars, state of California cars, right? <laughs> there were two Orange County Sheriff cars. There were two San Diego County Sheriff cars. There was an Orange, uh, San Diego County Sheriff's helicopter orbiting overhead. And all of these guys in little blue windbreakers with glocks on their hips, two extra clips, and a little badge that said California Medical Board Police. Now, I had no idea that there were medical board police. <laughs> Apparently there are. <laughs> and this investigator came up to me and he said, hi, Dr. McCauley, my name's Investigator Hitt. And he stuck out his hand and I said, hi, Dr. Uh, Investigator Hitt, what's this about? And I stuck out my hand and he handcuffed me and they threw me in the car and they extradited my ass to Orange County because they had found the triplicates, all right? Now, there's a reason for that. It's a crime. I had committed a crime. I often read my criminal complaint just to really understand 
what was expected of me and how I violated that. These guys are cowboys. They are serious. And so if you have hot triplets out there, well, get into your medical boards program as fast as you can. Every now and then, someone will, will John Milner or someone under Garrett O'Connor will call me up and say, hey, can you talk to this guy, some doctor who doesn't want to report? I don't think I need that. You know, blah, blah, blah. And so I tell them a few Leavenworth stories, and they can't get to the phone fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I should call today? What do you think? Well, today's Sunday. I think you can wait till Monday. I'll call tomorrow. <laughs> they are serious. It is a crime. And, you know, I'm glad that they pointed that out to me. I, I, I do want to know, though, why did they know, need two extra clips? You know? why did they, what did they think I was going to do? Forge another triplicate? You know? <laughs> Stand back or I'll get you all high. <laughs> Take them out, man. <laughs> I want to finish here, but that experience that I had on that Christmas, that is my higher power. It's a force greater than me. I am accountable to it. I'm very, very young in my sobriety, very, very young in my knowledge and understanding of a higher power, but I turn to that in the tough times. Now, I suppose if I'm smart, I'll sit down right now. But I can't. I bring you a message from the prisons of the United States of America. I bring you a message from the men and the women who will never leave there. I bring you a message from the addicts in those prisons to the doctors in recovery. You do handle this. Help us. Please act. There are three major human rights movements of the last century. The movement for women's rights, the civil rights movement, the movement for the rights of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Americans. At the core of each of these movements are issues of health, reproductive health, equal treatment at the hands of doctors and clinics, HIV prevention and AIDS awareness. And each time that these groups looked to us, to medicine, for help, each time the injustice was clear, each time the science showed us the truth, each time our duty was clear, each time we should have acted, we could have changed things, and each time we did not. And it was up to the patients to affect change. It was Margaret Sanger who went to prison for those patients. It was W.E.B. Du Bois who wrote the manifestos. It was Harvey Milk who dared live out in the open, free from shame, like any other American. These patients threw off the oppressive beliefs that were sold to them, the idea that women are constitutionally incapable, you understand, of, a, of caring for themselves, the idea that, that minorities are, at their core, morally and genetically inferior, the idea that homosexuals have a personality, you see, that is immature, sociopathic, undeveloped. Each time they said, you know what, we're not going to believe it. I listen to folks who work in treatment centers, and I'm starting to get the idea 
that they just don't like addicts very much. I'm starting to get the idea that they believe that addicts are inherently dishonest, liars, sociopathic. I went to a conference last year in Atlanta. Every single lecture by a doctor characterized addictive behavior in the context of cluster B access to personality disorders. Could it be possible that the frontal cortical dysfunction or hypofunction that we see looks like an access to personality disorder, but it's not the same because the difference is everything. The steps don't work on sociopaths. They work on people who, even though their behavior is terrible, are good, moral, decent, loving human beings. Heroin addicts. Heroin addicts are supposed to be so sociopathic, right? Do you know that heroin addicts, urban heroin addicts, actually form family units? They actually cluster together? That they actually share their resources, sometimes even their heroin? Heroin addicts are sweet, sweet people. Now, I'm not saying that we should all run out and join the urban heroin culture. (laughs) But I think that a lot of our beliefs that we don't question are wrong because there is a long history in medicine of mischaracterizing patients And I think we should question that. I tell the patients that I see that there is a group of doctors, small in number, but growing. And we have decided that of all the patients out there, patients with heart disease, patients with diabetes, patients with foot fungus, we like addicts. Do you understand what I'm saying? We like addicts. We like them high. We like them sober. We like them as they are. We think that's better sober, but we'll take them any way we can. Of all the patients out there, we choose them. And in our offices, we don't point fingers. In our offices, we are not the instrument of social control. We will fight for these patients. See, once again, we find ourselves on the same battlefield. Once again, we have a social injustice. Once again, the science, the data is clear. Once again, our duty is before us. What will we do? Will we act? I say that we will. Because this time, the doctors are the patients. And the patients are the doctors. This time, we have what we need to defend these patients. They talk about the three waves in feminism. The first wave, uh, Wollstonecraft, Katie Stanton. The second wave, de Beauvoir. The third wave, Kristeva. Well, we are now facing the third wave of doctors in addiction medicine. The first wave, Jelinek, Silkworth, Thibode. The second wave, Talbot, Hyde, Milner, O'Connor, Hunter. Now the third wave is beginning. And I want you to know that the cause endures, the hope lives on, the dream will never die. We will fight for these patients. And the coming battle will not be in the clinics, although the work they do is important. The coming battle will not be in the labs, although their work is vital. The coming battle will be on the television screens, in front of the cameras, in the court of public opinion, in the courts themselves. Last night, Andrea Barthwell was a guest on Bill O'Reilly. Did any of you see it? Bill O'Reilly, this guy who shreds people when they come on his show. She went on there, and do you know what he said? Yes, doctor. Whatever you say, doctor. I trust you, doctor. We are obligated to fight this fight. And yes, yes, AA is far wiser than me. I understand. There is a context for this. AA is not that. I agree. 
but that does not absolve us of our duty to defend these patients. This time, we are ready. We have been taught by the very best minds, by the very best hearts. It has not escaped my notice that the second wave is ending, and I wish it wouldn't. It has not escaped my notice that we won't have you forever. And so I need to know everything that you know. I need to know all the stories. We need to hear all the names and the dates. We need to know where the mistakes were made so we don't make them again. We need to know where your strengths were so that we have them again. Because this time, we are ready to fight this fight. This time, we will do this. All of our training has prepared us for this. 3,500 years of medicine looks to us this day, this room, us, now, in this moment. What will we do? Will we wait for more data? Will we wait for another pill? Or will we act? We have everything we need to solve this problem today, now. And so, will we go to prison for these patients? Will we fight for them? I say we will. The last time I went to prison, I went to prison for something I knew was wrong. The next time I go to prison, I'm going to go for something I know is right. I'll go to prison for these patients. You bet I will. Because someday, we will build a world of fewer drunk driving deaths, a world where we don't incarcerate, mass incarcerate people because they have nothing more than a brain disease. If one doctor, one doctor, were to lie down in front of one of the buses that daily takes 100 to 1,000 Americans off to the system of prisons because they have nothing more than a brain disease. If one doctor said, you know what, that's enough. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. These are my patients. They are sick people. I will defend them. If one doctor did that, this drug war would be over. And we are going to do this because silence equals death, because we are speaking in a different voice, and because our eyes are on the prize. We only need to follow the same footsteps of these other movements, and we will have our Brown versus the Board of Education. We will have our Roe v. Wade. We will have our Lawrence v. Texas. And then someday, when you and I are gone, when we're in the celestial group, your grandchildren will sit down with your great-grandchildren. My grandchildren will sit down with my great-grandchildren. And they will open up a history book to the page of the year 2004. And they will see two million people in prison. They will see the mass incarceration of people with brain diseases. They will see a war raging in Colombia. And they will see how all that ended, how those people were brought home, how they went to AA, how they got sober and became the wives and the husbands and the fathers and the mothers and the employees and the friends that they always were. And your grandchild will sit down with my grandchild and they'll point to that page and they'll say, do you see that? Your grandma was part of that. Do you see that? Your grandpa helped make that happen. But it is what we do now in the moment when we still know nothing that matters. Someday we'll have all the answers. Someday the answers will be clear. We won't have a problem with this. We'll understand everything there is to know about addiction. But it is what we do now that the patients are looking for. It is what we do now in the moment when we know nothing that says much more about us than what we do someday in the moment and we know something. Thank you very much.
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308 or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com. 